This morning we concentrate our time on Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. And I, I entitled this sermon, The Love of Christ, The Love of Christ. And specifically what Paul is referring to is the love of Christ toward uh, our neighbors. Love of Christ toward our neighbors. So after the outworking of how ought we to respond uh, to uh, the governing authorities, Paul then goes to matters of not only the conscience, which he'll deal with. Uh, he ended there as a major section in verse 5 of 13 where he says, we're doing what we do for conscience sake. And he will pick that up again in verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. But everything that is said here is the outworking of a clear conscience before the Lord toward one another. So he deals with how do we uh, how do we obey? How do we live in light of the governing authorities? And then how do we work that out toward one another? So in uh, in verse eight, it says, oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So Paul says we owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And that is a cause and effect in a sense, because it is the reason for which we can obey those who rule. And it is the reason for which we can love our enemies who may not rule in the way that we like. But the outworking of everything above is that it stimulates love for one another and thus the love for our neighbor, because that's what Paul is after. He's after a love for our neighbor. And uh, this is why you act as though you have no fear of the governing authorities that God has placed where he has. And if you tie this all the way back to Romans chapter 12, verse one, all of what is said is a continuation of the fact that this is our spiritual service of worship. Our love for one another is our spiritual service of worship. So it's not only what we do for God, it's not only what we do in the realm of obeying governing authorities, but it is how we treat one another is also an extension of that spiritual service of worship. And it is to owe no debt to or for one another. It's to owe no debt to or for one another, except our love for one another. That is what we are about. And so he writes, uh, he writes that very plainly. Uh, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So this love is not marked off by any external pressure, be it from earthly powers or any other circumstance. So he's not saying uh, when the government is favorable toward the Christians, the Christians then could love one another. When they're unfavorable, they may find challenges. He says in all cases, in the fulfillment of God's law, we are to love one another. And the law to which he refers is certainly as the Mosaic law has worked itself out into the fulfillment that is the law of Christ. So he's saying that the Christian lives under the law of Christ because Christ have, has fulfilled the Mosaic law. And he brings up the commandments that are situated within the law. But we are in Christ and therefore being in Christ, we conduct ourselves a certain way. So in verse nine, what he says is for this. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul goes not to situational obedience or pragmatism or so-called situational ethics with respect to earthly powers, because that is still in view in our passage as we relate to one another. Instead, he goes to the fulfillment and spirit of the Ten Commandments, the law given through Moses first. 
to the Israelites. Those were not given to destroy your neighbor, nor were they given to fight earthly powers in the flesh. They were given for the benefit of what would be the people of Israel extended looking outward in the future as Christ fulfills it now to the church. By his fulfillment being under the law of Christ, we are now living in such a way that we can sum up the law in its entirety by love for one another in Christ and how that works itself out in our modern society in the church. But specifically, the love of neighbor, as Paul relates it to holiness, the love of neighbor is tied to God's working in the life of the believer. So people who cannot love one another and they say, well, the world's just too cold, the world's just too wicked, or this is happening, or that is happening, and they can't love one another it is because they do not demonstrate or show evidence of God's working in their life. The inability to love your neighbor is showing that God is, is not working in your life. So namely, Paul wrote specifically, and I say that because if you look at the way verse 9 is constructed, he wrote that love is tied to holiness, but also how the believer's motives are aimed expressly for the good of his neighbor. I'll say that again. Paul wrote that love is tied to holiness. That's why he brings up the commandments, but also how the believer's motives. There's that word motives again are aimed expressly for the good of his neighbor. Because with the law, it's not simply to sin if one performs the act. It is to sin if one is uh, conspiring in their minds to perform the act. And we know that from what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. But as we look at this, uh, that working against one another that would have been ours in the flesh before we knew Christ has now been changed. And now we deal with one another and, and, we, and we try to excel in the most excellent way for one another because of our love for one another and Christ's love for us. In this command, there is urgency. There is urgency. And there's urgency because we don't have a lot of time upon the earth. And there is the sure and true perspective that eternity is always ever present and near. In fact, if we were to jump down to verse 11 through 14, that is what Paul is referring to. He's saying we act the way we do in light of eternity because we know that eternity is near. We know that our time on this earth is not unlimited. And so we conduct ourselves in that way. And that's not uh, conducting ourselves by fear. It's conducting ourselves in love because perfect love cast out fear, as the Bible says. And so in this command, you see that eternity is always ever present and it's near. Eternity is taking place unbeknownst to our eye at times, but it is written on the heart of every man. And so we know it's near. So our holiness and our perseverance in him for one another must be plain to see for us all, even in the midst of world powers. He says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And it would be enough to say, well, we shouldn't do those things, and I don't do those things. But what Paul says even more is, you ought to be marked by love because you avoid those things. So the other side of that is, I act on behalf of my neighbor. I don't steal from my neighbor. I don't covet what my neighbor has. I don't try to assassinate uh, my neighbor, my neighbor's character through slander, slander and anger are likened to murder. I don't try to destroy them. And so in all those things, you shall not do these things. You shall instead do this. 
And the thing to which Paul refers is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You wouldn't in your right mind do any of those things to yourself. So Paul is saying then you wouldn't do it to your neighbor because you love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not that you don't love yourself and it's not this self-loathing that the modern evangelical takes advantage of. It is the fact that in loving yourself, you do not love yourself above Christ. And you love yourself in a point to where you expect that there's a dignity to bearing the image of God that you would also reciprocate and give to others. That I see myself made the image of God, so I would not welcome those things that fight against that image in myself or in others. And so it is uh, Paul's example. It's not simply what he's saying, but you see this by his example, the things that he calls the Romans uh, to. So he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he defines what that looks like. He defines what that looks like. He says, in loving your neighbor as yourself, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does not do a wrong. So many today are willing to do wrong to their neighbor and yet say that they love God. But there's no such thing or no place here. Because what you're then saying, if you're willing to do wrong to your neighbor, persistent wrong to your neighbor, you're willing to hate your enemies and do persistent wrong to your neighbor. You are saying that Christ has not fulfilled the law and you are saying that you can do what the law requires based on your judgments. But in Christ fulfilling the law, Christ has now called us to love those who are uh, who are opposed to us. So love does no wrong to a neighbor. The Christian is operating on the defense, not the offense. The Christian is operating on the defense, not the offense. So in this case, even as we talked about last week with respect to governing authorities, we're not rolling over. We're not rolling over. We're not saying, well, you know what? The times are just wicked. Uh, we'll just roll over and, and, and just uh, wait for our time to die. That's not what the Christian is thinking. The Christian is thinking, I will refrain from those things that are wicked in the manner of serving my Lord, and I will serve my Lord above all. And in that, I will love my neighbor. I will love my enemies. And I'm not saying that any of us do that perfectly, but I'm saying that that is indeed the standard to which we are called by God's spirit. So he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So you can see if someone is doing blatant, persistent wrong to their neighbor, you can see that the love of Christ does not abide in them. It doesn't abide in them. I'm not talking about those momentary conflicts, those momentary conflicts that come between people and yet there has to be a working out of forgiveness in those areas because people sin against each other. But I'm saying the persistent scheming to do wrong, the persistent doing wrong toward the neighbor and not being willing to love those who are your neighbor. Because Paul doesn't qualify that the neighbor is simply a believer. Paul says your neighbor, those who live within your company, you ought to love them. And a lot of people don't look at this the way that it should be looked at when connected to what is said before, because connected to what is said before is it is then not very difficult in some ways to do what we have to do with respect to the governing authorities in the fact that we have a love for our neighbors. This is not a naivety towards your neighbors. It's not being naive, but it is a love for your neighbor, love for your neighbor. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
And he's not talking about the squishy postmodern tolerance of evil. Nothing in here because he already said the other side of loving something is to hate something. He says that in order to love God and to love people, you have to hate evil. You have to hate evil. So you have to identify what evil is in order to love the right way, to love the appropriate way. In order to refrain. Remember what we said last week about discerning, uh, discerning uh, disobedience. It's not this disobedience that is to an edict that comes from God. It's I have to step back sometimes and say that's not from him. I can't follow that course. Or I have to move forward and say that would represent his interests. I therefore must follow suit. But in this case, it is the fact that uh, that one is fulfilling what Christ has required by loving in the way that Christ has called us to love. And that means to hate evil. Paul says it earlier in our text. He says you have to hate evil. And even in verse 21 of, uh, of chapter 12, do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. He doesn't say do evil to overcome evil. He doesn't say overcome evil by fear. He says to overcome evil by good. This is an extension of that. This love for neighbor is an extension of that. In verse 11, then Paul attacks complacency. He he attacks complacency, not doing what we ought. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you. To, uh, to be awakened from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than we believed. This is tied directly to our text before, whereby Paul commanded gifts to operate for the benefit of one another in the most excellent way. It's all connected. And so he points to not resisting authority as a mark of the end times in which we will ultimately be vindicated by Christ. But then Paul also points to our persistent love for one another. That is how we continue in the face of mounting pressure from the world and from wickedness, spiritual wickedness in high places. So many are trying to fight spiritual wickedness in high places by joining spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul says, no, we stand where we are and our persistent love for one another in Christ as Christians is going to help us. Uh, and demonstrate to us that not only have we already won, but the time for winning is much, uh, uh, much closer than we believe. And that is what he's saying. So he points to our persistent love for one another because that is truly how we win. Love in the truth. That is truly how we win. Uh, there's so many people who want to throw off truth in the name of love and just have love be an emotion toward one another. But Paul is bringing them very close together. And overthrowing evil. Because to do good in the way that Paul commands, you have to do the will of Christ. You have to be in Christ. To win the way that Christ would have us win. To be commended by him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have to fight the way that Christ has commanded us to fight. So Paul points to our persistent love for one another. We ought to be free from wickedness. He says, do this, knowing the time that it is Already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. We don't awaken from sleep, uh, you know, every four years. We don't awaken from sleep at the end of uh, at the end of the age. He says now you awaken from sleep. And Paul is writing this uh, almost 2000 years ago. Now you awaken from sleep. If you're in Christ, awaken, awaken. 
And what should cause us to be awakened? Well, look what he says. He connects it here. For now, salvation is nearer to us than we believed. So he points our hope to the fact that Christ is coming back. That is the perspective above all perspectives. It's not simply that we love one another because, man, the days are evil. I fear so many are becoming charismatically inclined that evil is what is driving their motivations. But really for us, it's the supreme holiness of Christ and his return that drives our motivation. We know that whatever's happening and so much is happening against us and so much is happening in our lives. But whatever is happening, Christ is going to return. Christ is that is our motivation. And I know that we all need that as encouragement, but that is our motivation. Paul says your salvation is nearer. It's nearer to us than we believe. And so in that sense, we ought to be we ought to be free from this wickedness. And then look what he says. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We ought to be, as I said, free from wickedness. Wickedness may be all about. It may be surrounding us. It may seem to be at times penetrating. But Paul refers to the day. The day, not the night. We're not consumed by the night. We're consumed by the day. And the day to which he refers is the great day of the Lord, the day of his glorious return, the day of final judgment. So it is. I mean, he's almost bringing this section as we looked at Romans nine to eleven. He's almost bringing it home for us that the day to which we long for is the day of Christ's ultimate return upon this earth to vindicate uh, his name and to gather us up with him. So this is the great day of the Lord that's referred by the prophets of old, the day of the Lord. We, we learned about this in Daniel. It shows up again in many passages in the Old Testament, even in the new. But it is the final judgment. He says the day, the day, the day is near. The day is near. He's not talking about just the temporal change of days, maybe a season of life. He's talking about the return of Christ. It is the reason that we're here this morning. We are gathering together in commemoration of the fact that our Lord is risen and he will come back again. He says, let us lay aside then, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You cannot fight evil with evil. You cannot beat darkness by going into the darkness. You can only beat darkness by dwelling in the light that drives out the darkness. And so in that case, what he says is, let us lay this aside. We must not do evil that good may come. This is what Paul the Apostle was accused of saying falsely. But this is not what he believed, and he says it so plainly here. We must not do evil that good may come, nor should we do evil to thwart evil. That comes up. Uh, in our passage, uh, if you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 17, he says it plainly. Look at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so it is a great danger and temptation for many to perform evil. As the times grow more and more evil, as said in uh, the latter epistles as a promise to the closeness and nearness of the end times. 
It is a great danger and temptation to perform evil so as to combat evil and then to justify it as holy. But this is not the way of the Lord. This is not the way of the Lord. This is not simply this is not simply how we would approach uh, the fight, the spiritual war that we in. It's not simply what we do for or how we operate to one another as well. Because remember, he has in view how we deal with one another. If we are pragmatic and shifting in our way and how we deal with evil powers, we will be pragmatic and shiftless in how we deal with one another. This is about personal holiness. It's about personal holiness. So he says the night is almost gone and the day is near. That means all things are about to give way to the light, to the great light of his return. The darkness is about to subside. That darkness of sin that covers all things and provides cover for all things. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. You know, when the light is on you, when the light is shining on you, you may be uh, less tempted to perform what you will in the cloak of darkness. So he says, let us behave properly as in the day. This sounds so much like the parables of Jesus related to the very end in his return. It is to conduct ourselves clothed in the armor of light, to live in light of the word of God and submission to governing uh, governing bodies as they do not bear the sword in vain, exercising the prevalent gifts that we have to one another and loving one another in Christ. Paul then goes to the specific deeds of darkness that we must put off. He goes to the specific deeds. He not only says deeds of darkness and you're left to wonder, well, what are those? He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. He goes to these specific. He leaves no area for pragmatism, no matter what we face, especially to those Roman Christians of old. They could not defeat the mighty Roman Empire by living like them and fighting like them. Both living like them and fight. So many will warn you not to live like them, but they fight like them. Paul says you can't live like them and you can't fight like they do. Because then you are participating in deeds of darkness. I know it will be tempting to fight like them. It's why it's all written here as it is. Because Paul is saying don't do it that way. Because the temptation is to do it that way. Because you can yield temporal results by fighting like the pagans. But Paul says no, you fight like the Christians. And it starts with the personal holiness. To win the war, there must be true holiness. Some can win a fight by living evil, but they won't win the war because they fail to live holy. And so he says, let us behave properly. Let us behave properly. We do not use the cloak of secrecy provided in the night to digress into our enemy's behavior. The cloak of secrecy. Paul calls the Christian to a standard of measurable conduct before the saints, not in carousing and drunkenness, for he speaks of the alertness we must have in our senses. Our senses cannot be dulled, nor can we join in evil feasting and celebration with enemies of the cross. That's what Paul is saying. We cannot join in this celebration with them. We cannot join in, join in this feasting with them, for they are celebrating their own demise. They are on a different schedule in their minds and their actions. They are on a deceived destination. They believe they're headed somewhere, but they will not arrive at the destination they have in mind. 
But then for our purity, for our purity, Paul goes right to it. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And typically all those things go together. But what Paul is saying is it is for our purity. Not in promiscuity and lack of reverence for the intimacy that God has provided in the context of marital union alone between male and female since the beginning. That is how you win. It's not just a fight for the family. It is a fight for how God has designed the family to continue instant in his way and to drive toward fellowship of the saints. It is that family structure, that family union. It's not simply family, but it's that family unit that God calls us to aspire to. And he's made provisions for that. He's made provisions for that since the beginning. It is not in this selfish ambition. The strife and jealousy befitting of unbelievers. I'll say, it, I'll say it again. Where you see strife and jealousy, I don't care how polished and how articulate it is and how religiously uh, uh, presumptive it is. I will tell you it is befitting of an environment of unbelievers. Where you see persistent and rampant strife and jealousy, you have unbelievers. People who don't believe in Christ. They believe in themselves. They believe in the people around them perhaps time, but they don't believe in Christ and they're not demonstrating that they're tied to him. They're not demonstrating that they have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the cause for that is to devour one another. It's to devour one another. But I'll tell you, at the same rate that unbelievers, the world at large devours one another, what Paul is essentially writing is the Christian is expected to serve one another. So at the same rate the world is devouring one another, we're marked off by excelling that rate by serving one another. And by serving, I don't even mean I don't mean subjugation. I mean truly serving, truly the love of Christ we have for one another, truly praying for one another, truly seeking to identify the needs that we have and trying to meet those needs if God permits. And we talked about that in the gift section in Romans 12, that we excel in these things. We have to excel, not simply to show the world, but to show one another. So many do what they do in some claim to show the world. You can slip into works righteousness by trying to show the world. I show the world I love the Christians. So you become a photo op. But what I'm saying is I'm showing you that I love Christ and I'm showing you that I love you. And if the world should see that, then I pray the world would come to terms with their coldness that they have toward one another. There is an intimacy to that. There's an intimacy. It's the same way that one ought to you know, love their family in the same way. You ought to love your children and love your spouse in the same way. Not because you want the world to see that you do, but because you do, because Christ commands you to do that. There's a genuineness. We talk about motive because God is concerned. There's a genuineness in the motives. And so you don't just have the acts, you have the motives. But Paul then goes to the victory in war. And that's where I'll end this morning. He goes to the victory of war, all theater of war, all theater of war. You can only be victorious in what he says next in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Do not compromise with sin in your members. We are all tempted, but we must not succumb. We are all tempted, but we must not succumb. Many make a good showing in the flesh to fight outward powers. 
We've talked about that since the beginning of this section. They make a good showing in the flesh to fight outward powers. And the reason you and I don't want to buy what they're selling is because they make provisions for the flesh in their lives. So they will fight, fight, fight the world around them. But in their lives, they are not fighting the sin within them. And so there, that's called hypocrisy. When you can fight the powers that be, the evil powers that be outside of you, but you will not fight the evil that may lurk inside of you if you do not deal with it. So they do not fight the war of sanctification in their own members. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is essentially saying that you must start with the individual and then you work outward. So much of so-called Christianity today is in the rut that it's in. Yeah, it's financially viable for, for the people who are playing the game, but it's in a rut that it's in because they're fighting outwardly and then maybe we'll get to the inward later. We're worried about community, but now we're not worried about the individual. So nobody's fighting the inward battle. They're only fighting the outward appearances and the outward and setting the table before you to make you think the outward appearance is the mark of what's going on inwardly. But if you're doing what you're doing inwardly, that is fighting the war uh, against sin in your members, then outwardly it will certainly look as though that's the case and it will be the case. And you'll be doing it for Christ. You have to be armed with Christ. You have to be armed with Christ. I believe that simple point, this put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So many are putting on so many other things, aren't they? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? He, Paul talks about it in Ephesians. That I have the word of truth. I have the word of truth through prayer. Through not only just studying the word, but through applying the word, through confession of sin. I mean, it goes on and on through performing the good works that he's given me along with my salvation. Not to earn salvation, but I've been given those works and thus I perform those things. That is how I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, there, there are so many, as I said, they're armed with their own sense of fighting spiritual wars in the flesh. This must not be so. We only win in Christ. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't say let go and let God. That's false teaching because he says you have something you have to do. Make no provision for, for the flesh in regards to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provisions for the flesh. Make no provision. If you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you also give glory and honor to him where, where he has proven victorious in whatever arena. But we only win in Christ. And listen to this. We only prevail in our love for one another. We only win in Christ, so we win, but we prevail. We win in the most excellent way as we demonstrate our love for one another. The next time we're together, we'll look at chapter 14 in its beginning, and Paul goes to our conscience for one another. He goes back to the conscience uh, for one another. Let's pray.